0: Well, good morning, everybody. What a good morning it is. Um, those of you who know uh, Linda and Herlin Brooks, um, who have sitting right over here in the first service, today is their 40th wedding anniversary. They greet us before the first service, so you can find them, tell them hey, congratulations, and I always like to point that out. Uh, anybody who's been married 40 years or more and you have an anniversary, you know, you're especially one of those big 10 ones, um, let us know for a couple of reasons. One, I... I it, I mean, well done, right? That's worth honoring. And then two, all the young marriages in the room so that you can spot them and go like, okay, so apparently I need to be discipled by them. Uh, that you can go find them and say, how did you do it? How did you get here? Uh, what's the plan? Uh, to let you know. So we're going to jump straight into First Samuel um, today. And, uh, and I am excited to do so. We are in chapter 1, and we are starting today in verse so if you can pull out your copy of God's Word, of course, it'll be on the screen as well. But, you know, you can't always trust me to put what it actually says up there. So you need to have a look at it yourself as well. So keep, keep, uh, keep an eye on me. All right, now, this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. Now, we go through... These passages in the Bible, when we, when we go through it this way, when we have these type of conversations that we teach through, straight through the passage, straight through the narrative, straight through the, the passages here, um, we're doing that for a reason. We're, we're digging here, we're looking here for the universal truths that are being revealed by God's Word. And so, that's why we prayed last week that God would humble us to be ready to hear it, to be prepared to listen. Um, one of the things we're going to see in Samuel is the humble hear from the Lord um, and the prideful Do not. Um, and so for us to to be prepared to listen and to see what God has for us, we look for these learned universal truths that we can find in His Word and then apply to our own lives. We look for Him, we look for His Word, we look for His truth, and we listen to those. We look for ourselves in there. We're looking for the good things in us that we can encourage, that can be fanned into flame. We're also looking for those dark, weak, or wicked things in us so that we can battle against them in the Spirit. When we see God at work in the lives of others, we find inspiration for our own lives. And that's what we're going to see in the Samuels, is we're going to see God at work in the lives of people who died 3,000 years ago, and yet we're going to be challenged by that. And then we develop the types of relationships where we can where we can have those discussions and have those challenges where people know us well enough to, to check on us and, and check in and see how we're doing and challenge our thinking and to engage. And we see that um, right here. And that's part of why, for example, today, st- tonight is our Sunday night activities um, start up. And so I hope you're we've got prayer groups and life groups and stuff for kids and teenagers and all kinds of stuff, places for us to then dive in and, and continue to understand and unpack God's Word to us in new ways. Now... This verse, I'm going to unpack a little bit more because I'm going to unpack, uh, starting next week, really the whole, high, the whole high priest idea. And the priest idea, and Eli and Hopni and Phineas are going to come up several times for us to unpack them. This just references them, so we're going to come back to that later. But I can't move on past a term that is here in verse 3. It is the term, the Lord of hosts. Here in the Hebrew, Yahweh Sabaoth. Um, anytime you see in your Bible, um, when you're looking in it, and the word Lord is capitalized, um, the whole, all four letters of the word are capitalized, L-O-R-D, that's, that is going to be the Hebrew word Yahweh. Now, in the Hebrew, there's no vowels there, so just Y-H-W-H, but it is Yahweh's how we pronounce that, Yahweh-Sabaoth. This is, in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 3, the first time that this term shows up in Holy Scripture, the word um, Lord Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. Um, at some point in Samuel, because of the authors um, of Samuel and the way they reference God, they use several different names for God. Um, if you look closely, we'll even see two or three today. Um, but we're going to unpack the names of God at some point that are as they're found in, the, uh, in these books of Samuel and, and look at what they mean and why they show up where they do and discuss that a little bit. But for, day, I just, for today, I just want us to focus on this one, the Lord of hosts. Again, we picture God, It's so rightly we picture God as the God who is loving, the God who is a friend who sticks closer than a brother, as a father who loves to give good gifts, as the mother hen who would like to gather us under her wings. This is, this is the God as he's revealed himself, gentle, patient, um, long-suffering, enduring, uh, loving, and graceful. Also, not in contradiction, this is not a but, it is an and, and we also see that He is Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of armies. This doesn't mean earthly armies, although that applies as well. Here we're talking almost certainly about the heavenly hosts. The massive armies that God commands that are at His back and call the invisible creation of angels and the angelic hosts. Every time I think of this idea, Lord Sabaoth, His name, this idea what strikes me is the passage we get in Matthew 26, when Jesus is being arrested, and the apostle Peter jumps out in front with his knife, um, with his sword, and he slices off the ear of one of the men who's there, probably going for the head, hit his helmet, went down, caught the ear, and, and Jesus steps in. And one of the first things Jesus says here to Peter is this Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Here we have Jesus stepping in, stopping Peter, and like, Peter, do you really think I need your help? Is it really what you think this moment calls for? Is that, man, I'm just, Jesus is kind of helpless, let me step in. I think I have that temptation sometimes as well, that, that some, there's, an, there's an enemy of God, or a message that is an opponent to God, or something that goes against his gospel, and my temptation is to be like, no, God, you know what, I, I got this one. Let me, let me take this one. God doesn't need my help with this. When we defend the gospel, we're defending the truth, but we're not defending God in the sense that He doesn't need us to defend Him. He's got this. In fact, I've always pictured that during the the next 12 hours of Jesus' life, as He is being tortured and lied about and tormented and abused, that you actually have thousands of angels doing a lot of sharpening of blades. They're just waiting for the opportunity. I've always imagined that these, all these angels, these battle-tested, hard-bitten angels, ready to go to war, are probably standing up, going before the Father, constantly going like, I, "We've got to, that. We've got to tolerate that. You've had me slaughter whole nations for less than that. Really, this? We've got to put up with this. I've imagined not only does Jesus, could he just call on his, on these angels, but God the Father, Lord Sabaoth, is actually holding back the angels who are pulling at the leashes to go make things right. How dare the second person of the Trinity be treated this way on earth? It's time for us to just kind of wipe them all out and start over again, don't you think? Lord, isn't it about time for we should just go do that? And the Father and Jesus Christ saying, no, no, this is what's got to happen. This is the plan. Though I am Lord Sabaoth, though I could call thousands upon thousands of angels, maybe each of whom could slaughter. There's one angel that kills hundreds of thousands of Assyrians in a single night in Scripture. That's one. What's it like to have thousands upon thousands of those sweep down when the Lord Sabaoth sends them? So we can't forget that in the midst of the truth of who God is, this is also part of who God is. The Lord of angels. The Lord of the hosts. Verse 4, on the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. So again, I would encourage you, we've gone over this and talked about some of this, this aspect of the story last week. Um, one of the challenges for you is if you miss a Sunday You're going to feel pretty behind when we go through this way if you don't go back and listen to or watch or something, uh, the sermon from before. Um, So I don't have time to unpack all of this again. So this man, though, takes his family over rough and unsafe country every year, at least once, to sacrifice at the tabernacle. And of the leftover meat from the sacrifice, he would serve his family. To his grieving wife, he would give a double portion of food. Now, we don't understand this very well because we're, we're full all the time. Um, we always have plenty to eat. Um, we, we don't have any problem when the, when the doctor says, like, hey, for some medical procedure, we need you to go 12 hours or 24 hours without eating. It's like, yeah, all right. Our, your, your body's fine. Your body's like, no, no, we got plenty packed on. We're good. We, you've stored up enough. You can go long enough. Very rarely, we, what we call hungry is really just it's been a while since we ate. Um, We're ready to eat again. It's not that we're hungry. Very rarely do most of us feel that. So when we host Passover, for example, here, the first time or the first time I host Passover somewhere afterwards, people were like, I feel like I need to like go to Whataburger or something after the feast, right? Because by our standards, it's not that much of a feast. There's only like six different choices to eat from, and there's only a certain amount to eat. But in this era, an era in human history, as with most of human history, even with a lot of the world today... You're never full. You may remember when Dr. Bob went through the book, when we were going through the book of John and Dr. Bob taught about the feeding of the 5,000. And there's a key phrase in there where it says, when everyone had had all they could eat. When everyone was full. That's probably a new experience for most of them. They never felt full before. They'd always run out of food before they ran out of empty stomach. That's hard for us to wrap our brains around. In this day and age, to give a double portion was a big deal. It was a big deal. You don't just have what we have you get twice that. You get to experience being that much less starving and that much more full than the rest of the family. But it doesn't help because she's not even going to eat it. Imagine, if you would, being hungry and still unable to eat because of your grief. Here's what we're going to see. Why is this? And I think, I think our Bibles underplay this. I think the English Bible underplays this next section um, so I'm going to try to unpack it a little bit so we get a better picture. It says in verse 6, and her rival. Now, when I think of a rival, you know, I think about like college football. When I think of a rival um, in my life, like who would my rival be? Well, it'd probably be whoever beat me at Settlers of Catan last time or something. I don't, I don't know. It's like, what, is a, what does it mean to be a rival? Here, rival actually means the cause of affliction, the cause of distress, this person brings stress and trauma into my life constantly. The, the language goes on. Her rival used to provoke. Again, here, provoke feels too passive for the Hebrew. To inspire anger, like to light a fire. That kind of thing. Her, to, used to provoke her grievously. So here you have the Hebrew word for anger plus the word for ongoing or further. Yet more, yet more. She just keeps piling it on. Penina won't stop with this. She continues to provoke her. And then my favorite, the word irritate here is the Hebrew word for thunder. It's a a, a loud, disruptive sound, this rumbling, this uncomfortable feeling like when you're a kid and it won't stop and you cover your ears and the thunder keeps coming and it's getting through your hands covering your ears and it's so scary. This is, I think, is the picture. And I, I think this language greatly underplays what Hannah was experiencing at the hands of Penina. But here's a lesson. There's a couple of lessons that I think are kind of strange that came to me as I was looking at this, and one of them was this. Is there anyone for whom we are that? Is there anyone who you are the cause of their distress? Is there anyone... So most of us are pretty quick to think of the people who cause us distress. Pretty good at that. But have we ever stopped and thought, who am I on constantly? Who, do I, who am I creating an irritation for them nonstop? And who, who am I a cause of their distress? Who do I provoke like that? And, and I would hope that that would be something that we would all be wary of and aware of the fact that it can be any of us. That can be true of any of us. And that any of us could be that. And we don't want to be that. But in our own flesh and our own weakness and our own insecurity, sometimes we, we take on that role and can take on that role. And we want to be careful with that. Now, I'll be, t- I'll be honest with you, I'm always cautious at giving that type of direct application because I know the way, the way church people work. And that's probably that all of you who just then thought, wow, I wonder if that's me. It probably isn't. All of you who are like, yeah, I hope so-and-so hears that. That's yeah, probably you. It's probably, you're probably the one who's got... Like, this is something that we need to be digging into in our own heart. Where is that in us? Can we think of a way to say... I want to make sure I am not that in someone's life. I don't want to be the cause of that. Uh, where Michael used to go to school, they had a t-shirt that said something like, everybody's facing something hard. Don't make it worse. That's a great, that's a great m- mantra for us to be thinking a- along those terms. I actually want to stop and pray that we would be a church where people come and they don't run into people who just bring more distress in their lives. Father, I, I ask this for you as a blessing. Yet you know, all of us would examine our lives and see do we just stress creators for other people? And God, obviously I don't mean the normal burdens that we are to each other. Of course we are. And we're burdens of gold that we love each other and we want to serve and carry. But I mean that, we're, that we really are an intentional, or at least lacking the intentional, not being distressing, discouraging, tearing someone down. Lord, if we look in our hearts, I pray you would challenge us to search and know. Are we making decisions? Are we saying words? Are we doing things that deplete the life of another person? And I pray that we would not be the Panina in any story, ever. Um, Lord, I pray that you would, you would work in us to not be those things in each other's lives, but instead to be friends and to be good at it. Encouraging, uplifting, that every word that comes out of our mouth, that there would be no speech that would be the type of thing that tears someone down, but only that which is good for lifting others up. And I pray these things in your son's name. Amen. As we continue to look at this, we see the effect that it has on Hannah. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up into the house of the Lord, she used to provoke, again, the word there, demoralize, inspire anger. Therefore, Hannah wept and and. Again, the, 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 I think that this passage is meant to create a ton of emotion in us, and it's just hard to find that in the English sometimes. The word wept here means to sob, to bitterly weep. So she's sobbing, and she wouldn't eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep, and why do you not eat, and why is your heart so sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Now, there's something sweet about this, naively sweet, but sweet, um, nonetheless. How many times must our wives, men, especially those of us who are married, how, must, how often must our wives think in the back of their mind, this isn't about you? That, that they come to us with something, and our response is somehow back about us, and they go, but this, this isn't about you this time, like this one isn't about you. And how difficult that must be at times to face that, how often wives must think that when we, because as men, sometimes we want to turn it back to us. And I think, I think there's a fleshly desire in us. We don't like when the women in our lives have bad emotions, what we call bad emotions. We don't like when they feel bad things. And I don't think that's purely selfish. I don't think that's purely just like, because my life's better when you're happy. I don't think it's just that, although that's probably part of it. But a, it is also, I truly love you and I don't want you to feel bad things. And so the natural tendency in us as men is to do something like Elkanah does and essentially say, so stop. Stop feeling the bad thing. Are you better now? Did that do it? Did that fix the the bad emotion by me telling you not to have that bad emotion? Did that solve it? Elkanah here is going like, listen, if you would just change your thinking a little bit, I know you don't have a kid, and I know that makes you very, very sad, but listen, you have me as a husband. Isn't that as ten times better? Really, if you think about it, isn't that 10? See, you can be happy now because you have me as a husband, and I'm 10 times better than a child. And somehow that doesn't fix it for Hannah. I don't know why it doesn't, we've got people studying it, but Hannah misses misses the uh, solution that Elkanah offers her here, Um, uh, which again, there is a sweetness to it. But apparently, men have been trying to solve women's emotions this way for at least three thousand years. So I don't, I don't know it's going to solve any. That we're going to fix this uh, problem anytime soon. Um, so this is this is natural. But I want you to look. Here's the actual thing. I want you to really look at this from an odd angle as well. In our flesh, our natural temptation. This is part of the problem that men have in this. Is to is to assign bad to certain feelings. Our flesh doesn't like a feeling. Therefore, it is bad. I don't like being cold. Therefore, cold is bad and is something to be fixed. I don't like being hungry. Therefore, hungry is bad and is something to be fixed. I don't like being sad. Therefore, sad is bad and sad is something to be fixed. This is a dangerous way of engaging with the world. It's unhealthy. It's not even, it's not correct, but that's what our flesh does. I'm, I'm hungry. That's bad. I need to fix that. So I eat something. I am lonely, and that's bad, and I need to fix that, so I eat something. Um, I'm bored, and that's bad, I need to fix that, so I eat something. Now apparently not just me, Uh, that's not just my issue, right? And so that's our, we want to make these bad feelings go away. That's the entire temptation of pornography. It's the entire temptation of infidelity. It's the entire temptation is, I have a feeling, I don't like this feeling, I want this feeling to go away, and if I could just feel something different for a little while, maybe this feeling would go away, so we don't want to, whether it's angry or hungry or sad or, or lonely or bored or whatever those different things are, that's what leads us, because our flesh leads us into temptation because the flesh doesn't want to feel this anymore. And a good therapeutic rule is feelings are meant to be felt, not fixed. Because sometimes God has something in that for us. Isn't it true, as happens here, that sometimes God puts irritations in our life to drive us to Him? Isn't that true? I mean, when do you pray best? Isn't it when you're hurting or scared? When do we turn to Him? A lot of times it's very much so based on the hurtful and painful emotions that we have, and that should cause us and can cause us to look to Him just like it does with Hannah. We're gonna see this. I'm struck by this story every time. I would love to reach the level of maturity that King David has in 2 Samuel 16. We'll get there someday, but in this, what happens is he's being kicked out of his kingdom by his own son, shamed in unspeakable ways by his own son being chased from his kingdom. And as he's being chased from his kingdom, here we get in this passage in 2 Samuel, all these fascinating interactions as David's trying to escape his kingdom and escape his rebellious and murderous son. And and people keep stopping David along the way and they all have different messages for him and different things to say. It's really a cool little passage. And one of them is a relative of Saul named Shimei. And Shimei sees David running from his palace with his tail between his legs with only a handful of men. And Shimei thinks this would be a perfect time to mock David. David. Now, just like God and all of his rough and tough, hard-bitten, angelic mercenaries that he's got working for him, when David travels, it tends to be with a rough crowd. And as they're leaving, one of David's men, a guy named Abishai, and, and Shimei starts shouting curses at him, and Abishai says, hey, I'll be right back. I'm going to go remove that guy's head from his shoulders. Just be back. I just won't take a second. I'll be right back. And David says, no, catch this. I'm summarizing it, but David says, no, this may be God teaching me humility. Because all this other stuff going on isn't enough to teach me humility. What would it be like if our first response... Now, this isn't always the right response, but what if our first instinctive response to bad feelings was, I wonder what God's teaching me right now. What if God's trying to get my attention right now? What if in my pain and sorrow and grief and whatever happens to be, maybe there's something God has for me right now? That our first assumption that trouble, criticism, even betrayal is nothing more than my loving God drawing my attention to Him. Now, maybe more. And by the way, David has his son, Solomon, execute Shimei at the end of his life. So there's more to the story, but David's first instinct is to say, hmm, I wonder what God's trying to teach me right now. What is the trigger for that? Most of us have heard John Redfern Sr. preach and when he preaches, he gets up here and preaches, and he'll start preaching, and he connects to the first Bible passage, which reminds him of another one, and he then quotes it. or reminds him of another one, and he quotes it. and reminds him of another one, and he quotes it, and he keeps quoting Bible passages. And so I stopped, and I was like, John, how did? <laughs> I mean, how did you do that? I mean, you've memorized. Sounds like, feels like you've memorized half the Bible. I mean, you're, you, you connect pieces left and right. How do you do that? And John said, I memorize scripture in my sorrow. It's like I don't have a plan for it. I just memorize scripture when I'm hurting. And John is a man of sorrow, he'll tell you. And his, this has connected him to God in powerful ways. So I would t- encourage us, when we face those hardships and the trials and the pain, let our first thought be, what is God doing here? And I think we see that played out here by Hannah. So I actually want to mention, I also want to throw this out there. Is it that Hannah just wanted a child? Is it that simple? In our, in our conversation, Paul mentioned this just the other day. I don't remember, we were just standing in the hallway, and he's like, I think there's more to it than that. And in fact, looking at it, I think this is right. Was Hannah's heart broken just because she wanted a kid? Is that why she was weeping? I believe the evidence is going to lead us to this. Did she want a child? Of course she did. But I don't think that was the crux of it. It wasn't just about having a child. This wasn't like psychological completion for her. She was ashamed. I believe that Hannah was ashamed at the assumption that something in her life might have led God to be ashamed of her. She's supposed to be having children, and not just any children, Levitical children, children in the line of Levi, who are supposed to then serve in the, in the tabernacle. almost said it. almost said temple instead of tabernacle. I've been trying to break that habit. And uh, uh, somebody's going to shoot me with a dart maybe if I say it wrong. So those of you listening to the In Between podcast. All right, so to, he, to, uh, Levi shall, to serve God in his tabernacle. She didn't want a child just to complete her in some psychological way. She wanted a child to fulfill the ministry to God and His people. This is what she felt short on. She felt short on, I want to have this son so that I can send him into God's kingdom to have an impact. I wrote a note for myself at the beginning of this book, and I encourage you to do the same as we go through 1 Samuel. I want you to note when people worship. Under what conditions do people worship? What inspires them to worship when apparently no one else is? So in 1 Samuel chapter 1, starting in verse 9, After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. This Passover meal, if that's what it was, the meal had done nothing to make her feel better, which would make sense. Those of you who've been through Passover, you can imagine if you have a woman who is weeping and brokenhearted because she doesn't have a child, and then to go through Passover, Passover is all about passing along to the next generation what God has taught us. And it would be just one grief after another. I don't know what all of their experience of it then is similar to now, but we have children doing things all through it. They're supposed to run around and try to find any any um, leaven to get out of the house. Then there's questions they get asked and they answered. They're supposed to go out and see if God is coming back. Like this whole thing is this whole process that we see is all about these children learning these new things. That would just be breaking her heart, I think, every step of the way. And so, despite Elkanah's best attempts to comfort her with the fact that he's ten times better a husband she still is weeping bitterly. And she goes into the tabernacle all about... So what is she going to do? She says in verse 11, it says, She vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant... By the way, powerful Hebrew word here. And this, this got me when I saw this and looked this up. This is the Hebrew word for poverty. If you will look upon the poverty of your servant... And remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. So did she want a kid? Sure. But not merely. In fact, she was likely to only see this child. If if God gave her this child, she was likely to only see him once or twice a year. What she wanted was a blessing for the Lord of hosts. This child would serve in extraordinary ways. You will know, you'll notice that she vows and says, "O Lord of hosts," second time it appears in the Hebrew scripture, right here. O Lord of hosts, Lord Sabaoth, who doesn't need her son? He's the Lord of hosts after all. But if she, she says, "If you'll give me a son, I will give him back to you to serve you in this extraordinary ways," and boy, does he! I don't mean to give the ending away here, but just a tiny, bit, a tiny bit of inside ear into who Samuel's going to end up being. When the prophet Jeremiah is talking to God, and God is fed up with the sin of his people, and God says, I'm done, I'm finished, I'm bringing destruction upon my people, I've had it up to here, I'm done. He then says, if Moses himself stood on behalf of the people, I wouldn't listen to Moses. If Samuel himself stood between me and the people... I would not listen to Samuel. Samuel is going to be listed next to Moses as one of the greatest mediators in the history of the Jewish people. Right there. You want to honor a Jewish person? List them next to Moses. But the greatest mediators, in fact, biblically speaking, you could argue that the greatest mediators the Bible throws at us are Moses and Samuel and, of course, Jesus of Nazareth. That these are like the three top mediators that we see. It's a big deal that Samuel gets listed here. It's huge. That's what she's going to end up raising. So again, spoiler alert, I'm sorry to do that to you, but this is what's coming. But what here is she promising, and why is it necessary? Because the giving of the firstborn is something, one that all Jewish families do. There's even still to this day a process for doing that. On top of that, this is a Levitical family. So this is the the Levitical family that sons are someday going to serve in the tabernacle anyway. They're supposed to. Um, Look in Numbers 4.3. Uh, This is talking about the Levites from 30 years old up to 50 years old, all who can come on duty to do the work of the tent of meeting. This is going to be their job, again, the tabernacle. Numbers 8.24, this applies to the Levites from 25 years old and upward. They shall come to do duty in the service of the tent of meeting. So, So somewhere around age 25 or 30, depending on what their role is, they're going to be coming and serving in the tabernacle. Any son she has is going to be doing that. So why would she need to set aside this special thing? Um, So if the first Chronicles genealogy does indicate that he is in fact in the line of Levi, and I think we said last time, that's most likely the, the whole Ephrathite thing creates some confusion for us. It's kind of weird, but at the same time, I think it makes the best argument. So why would she need to consecrate him in a special way? Well, one, this is for life, not just starting at age 25 or 30. This is going to be when he's weaned, probably age three or four years old that he's going to go serve in the tabernacle. Essentially, she's going to give her son to be adopted by Eli, is the way some commentaries see this exact thing happening, is he becomes the son of Eli. Um, Two, this is a strange time. It's the end of the time of Judges, and probably a lot of the Levites aren't doing this. They aren't living out their obligation to serve in the tabernacle at all. We know of a few, at least, that aren't. But more importantly, and maybe most significantly, she is pledging more than the servant life of a Levite for her son. I think understanding she is sending, she is sending her son into the kingdom of God in a way that not many understand. In Psalm 127, um, one of the great passages for parents, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. And the fruit of the womb, a reward, like arrows in the hands of a warrior, are the children of one's youth, and blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies at the gate. Like any of us who have children, no matter how we got those children, any of us who have children, and for those who are investing in the lives of other people's children, as all of us should be, this plays out in a powerful picture of of parents launching a child targeting a child, sending them to have the greatest impact possible. And I think that's exactly what she's doing here. Because I think most commentaries agree that she is pledging her son to live the life of a Nazirite. The life of a person living out the Nazirite vow. So some of you are going, what is that? Let's look. We're going to spend this last part of the sermon looking at this, starting in Numbers 6. And number six, I'm going to read all of what the Nazarite vow instructions, the the initial instructions, the positive instructions say this. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong drink and shall not drink any juice of grapes or eat grapes fresh or dried. Kind of covering all the bases here. All the days of his separation he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins, as if anyone would ever want to do that. All the days of his vow of separation, so that's one, all the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall touch his head. Until the time is completed for which he separates himself to the Lord, he shall be holy. He shall let the locks of hair of his head grow long Two. All the days he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body. Not even for his father or his mother or brother or sister if they die. Shall he make himself unclean because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation he is holy to the Lord. That's third. So amongst a separated people. Remember the people of Israel are already separated. They are a separated, consecrated people. These are people who are now going to separate themselves and consecrate themselves even further. This practice of separation based on no dead stuff, no wine, no haircuts. These are meant to exemplify their purity, their purity of focus, their purity of attention, their purity of not being distracted, their appearance, not something they're worried about during this time, the luxuries, the good things in life, not something they're worried about this time, the responsibilities that they have, some of them, not something they're going to worry about at this time. We're going to focus this time specifically, purely on on the Lord. It also connects them to the priesthood. The priest had to abstain from wine and defilement, like touching dead bodies, during certain times of their um, work, although never to the same degree that the Nazarite. So it is like taking the priestly vows and taking the role of the priest and the priestly responsibilities and adding to it, multiplying it. it it's like the priestly vows on steroids, is what the Nazarite vow is. It's saying any Jewish man or woman, anyone, man or woman, can set themselves apart in a way that transcends even the high priest. This is a, remember, this is a nation of priests. They're supposed to all be able to do that. They're supposed to all be able to take a season of life and set it apart. It's pretty big. It's connected very strongly to the priesthood picture because the root word here is the word for separate. It is the word nazir. So to consecrate, to separate. Ex- Exodus 29.6 you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. Now you go like, what? what? I'm missing it. That's right. I actually think this probably is a mistranslation. Um, it's a misunderstanding of this passage. the The word here for the word crown is the word nazir, and the Hebrew people actually don't read it this way. They say you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy nazir on the turban. So again, this is kind of a weird in the English to go like, oh, you put a crown. on on the turban? How exactly does that work? They write the word Nazir on the turban. The turban itself has the holy word Nazir written on it. So no one can miss it. The, I am set apart. I am consecrated. Leviticus 21.12 He shall not go out of the sanctuary, lest he profane the sanctuary of his God. For the consecration of the anointed oil of his God is on him. I am the Lord. The word consecration of the anointed oil? Nazir. Again, connected to the, the oil, is anoint, this anointed oil that he used to be anointed with, it is the setting apart oil. It is the oil for setting this person apart. This word means this over and over again. It's where we get the word Nazarite. So does Samuel fit into this? Now, if you're a good Bible student or if you grew up going to Sunday school or children's church or whatever, the minute you read Hannah saying... For all the days of his life, a razor will not, cut, not touch his head. You immediately go to who is a person who's more famous than Samuel, at least to children. And that is Samson. So a picture of Samson. If we imagine Samson, I think I have one. So an artist rendering of Samson. Here we have Um, I know when we went through uh, Judges, we looked at Samson. I had like multiple pictures of him. Some of them, he's this huge He-Man action figure buff dude. And and this this one is a little more tame than the others. But this one gets the idea that he has a lot of hair. Correct. He would have gone, because Samson went his whole life without it. Another person who may have been a Nazarite, we don't know, but may have been, some people think, is a guy named John the Baptist. So you can throw a picture, a, a picture of a, an actor playing John the Baptist. If you've seen The Chosen, they present him as creepy John, right? He's John the Baptist, the weirdo, which is exactly how he probably would have been thought. Strange guy, lives out there, a little odd. Jesus, you've got a friend who's a little on the strange side, right? Um, which he certainly, he looked like Elijah. He dressed like Elijah. He, he served like Elijah on purpose, all of that on purpose. It may be that John the Baptist was also a Nazarite. His life would certainly fit into some of that. Of course, Samuel. Now, children's art sometimes, I think, does a disservice by trying to clean things up for us. So the idea of, uh, of this being, this is a picture of, of supposed to be, it says of Samuel. Now, I don't know if that's supposed to be Eli and Samuel, which would make more sense. But this idea of the pictures that most of the kids' drawings had of Samuel as a priest, he looked kind of like this, which is not Right? Because unless you think he disobeyed his mama, which I don't think he did, I think you're talking about somebody who at 50 years old, at 60 years old, at 70 years old, however old he was, when we, when, we, when we see him at the end of his life, had never cut his hair. And so what does it look like? I found a guy online who had not cut his hair for 60 years. And that looks like this. So you're talking about somebody, his hair is 24 feet long, this guy. And so uh, aren't you glad I do this kind of research for you? Um I think you would have had Samuel as an old man with a turban and his hair rolled up under that, a massive roll of 20 feet of hair wrapped up under this turban. Maybe the picture of, of him like it's hair up under the turban and running down his back. And by the way, he never, it, it specifically is eyebrows, eyelashes, beard, everything, like none of those things would ever be. And, and it may be that he never in his entire life trimmed or cut any of those parts of his hair. it would be an amazing picture, this long hair, old Samuel. Now, we're going to meet Samuel next week. Um, he's going to look like this, um, a little boy meeting with Eli. And so we're going to have to deal with the pain and consideration of a mother dropping off her child with Eli for the rest of his life. We know from the Acts the Epistles that Paul took a Nazarite vow at one point, maybe two different times. Um, and in some of the ancient copies, by the way, of Scripture, some of the more older translations, and yours may have this, there's actually a note that Hannah's... A uh, prayer to God here says not only that no, no razor will touch his head, but he will not drink wine or a strong drink, which would certainly mean we're talking about a Nazarite vow healer. In the temple period, there's a special chamber in the temple complex for people to come and conclude their Nazarite vow with a sacrifice and a haircut and a glass of wine, um, among other things. Paul did this exact thing in Scripture, the Apostle Paul. But Samuel would never have completed his until he died consecrated by his mother, not conformed to this world. At no point was he conformed to this world. Samuel lived his whole life all in. His mother and father sent him into the kingdom of God with a great vision to serve God with his entire being, to love the Lord his God with all his heart and all his soul and all his strength from day one and all the way through. And God has called us to the same thing. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says this, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So the question, what is my life about? Is my life saturated with Christ? Is that what our life looks like? No matter what our career path is, is that what our life looks like? What am I passionate about? What, what, what are my primary motivators? What are the things that matter most? My God, my wife, my kids, my friends, my church, His mission, those who I shepherd and lead, my community, and my country. Are these the things, though, the people around me know? Do they see that? Does that come out in my pores? Is it come out in the way that I appear and the way that I talk? With young people, which, by the way, I love being led by our young people. I love um, when we are singing and in worship and we see our young people um, standing in their sincere worship when we see um, those who have gone through, for example, the region ministries and others to, rep- to recognize what these songs mean to us, legitimately really mean that we really have been changed and saved by him, that we really can come to him. I love seeing Sean standing up this morning, leading us in w- as we worship, challenging the rest of us. Are we worshiping right now? Or are we just saying words? Young people, are you devoted to Christ? Everyone's telling you to have fun and live your lives and do what you want to do and just whatever, and instead what I would tell you is invest your freedom in the kingdom. Follow Christ with everything you have. For our young professionals who are here, are we all in or are we just dabbling? Just kind of messing around with faith or does it saturate us? Is it who we are at the deepest level? Men and women, are we serving and growing are we changing? Are we being grown by what God's doing in our lives? Or have we become pridefully stagnant? Do we get to the place where we've got it? We understand it. We, we, we don't need to learn anything else. Have we, are we spending our lives investing in the wrong things? Do we not represent Him well? Spending our life climbing a ladder, not realizing until it may be too late that the ladder is leaning against the wrong building. I think it's important for all of us as we look at this vow to consider what the Nazarite vow means to us what it would mean to us. What would it mean to set apart our lives, our period of time in our lives, to be wholly devoted to Him? And what would that be different? How would that make our life different if we did that? And we took out the distractions and focused in. So I'm going to ask you to stand with me as we consider this together. As we look at a passage that the Apostle Paul wrote to his student, Timothy, on this topic. But my assumption is the Spirit's working in us and the Spirit is guiding us and the Spirit is speaking to us that what does it mean that we worship Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts? What does that mean about our lives and what should that look like? What would that look like as we do that? Are we willing to sacrifice the thing that matters most to us like a child to Him? Would we be willing to sacrifice in advance? Listen, God, you give me these good things, whatever you give me, it's yours all the way. When we look at our lives now at the good things and the hard things, do we say, these are yours. I think this is what we're being called to do. So in a minute as we sing, you can sing. If that's how the Spirit leads you, you can pray. You can fall where you are on your knees and, and talk to the Father. You can come up here and do that. You can, you can pray with somebody over in the corner. You can come up and pray with one of us up here for sure. Um, whatever it is that God's leading you. If you've never put your faith in Christ and you're ready to do that, to, to trust Him more than just as a church person... But as a follower of Christ, um, we, we would love to do that with you as well. If you've been through our Welcome Home team and that whole process, you talk to Lance and you're ready to come and join our dysfunctional family, you can come do that as well this morning. However the Spirit leads you, uh, may He do so, and maybe, maybe we would listen. Um, uh-oh. So 2 Timothy 2, 1-7, through let me close with this. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. And it is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. The very words of God.